0: I don't know what it is about Sunday morning, but there's a sense of pressure and performance and do your best, that kind of thing. But Sunday evening is relaxed, and um, if I get a little silly, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I'm relaxed, and uh, we don't have to rush, and it's nice. So I want to just share something with you. You know, I've done this for many, many years, I take a, a hymn book like this, and Start at the first hymn, and this is a a wonderful thing to do in your devotions. Even if you don't have a good voice, praise my soul, the King of Heaven. And uh, I I do this with a pen and, and a highlighter in hand. So I'll sing this, and then I will mark because, as I was saying to the men the other night, I'm amazed. I'm amazed about hymn writers, how they can take great theology from the Bible and put it in words. I mean, it's really amazing. Now, there's different kinds of hymns and songs. Some are very light, and that's nothing wrong with that. Some are a little more repetitive, just like the Psalms. Some are very weighty and deep. I have a particular hymn book that none of you would ever have seen, but it's a very old one. Some of the words, and we might not like to sing it in our modern day, but some of the words are so beautifully constructed to unfold the deepest part of our salvation. And I just say, how could a person have that skill? So I want to encourage you to take your hymn book or any hymn book and do one hymn a day, but then mark your hymn book. I even write a little note on the top if I want to find something. Uh, uh, Mark maybe some key words or ideas, maybe think them over. It's a, a great way to prepare your soul for the word of God. So when the great F.F. Bruce, one of the greatest scholars of the 20th century, a man that people like Lance and I grew up on, I I can remember actually vividly starting the book of Acts with uh, reading F.F. Bruce on Acts, which in his day there weren't that many commentaries, and his was the commentary. But F.F. Bruce was asked... If the old question, if you're on a desert island, what two books would you have? Well, of course, you'd know he wants the Bible, the very words of the Lord. But then he said, I have my hymn book. My hymn. A very wise choice. So I'm giving you a little encouragement to help your devotional life, or you could do it as a family. It's very edifying to the soul. But here's something else that happens. When you put those words and songs in your mind, if you do it in the morning, it will follow you all day. And you'll find yourself singing that. Now, that's exactly what the Scripture says. Singing uh, to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always. So, in other words, it puts the Lord's uh, thoughts and the Lord's words into your mind to sing. So, I'm just passing that on. There's nothing extra on that. Let's go to Psalm 133. And I I will read it to you. And remember, this is the psalm I have picked out for you for this year. It's a psalm to think about for the assembly, and a psalm to think about at work. It's a psalm to think about in in the, in the household. It's for all occasions in which brothers and sisters get together. A song of a sense of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's like, it's like the precious oil on the head. Now you know what that means, don't you? And now you see why it is a beautiful illustration. The next one will be very similar. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like, it's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So, the first illustration is the holy oil upon the head. We've already looked at that. Unity is like that oil that could be used for no other reason except anointing the high priest and the tabernacle, the the king. It was a special, unique oil. The psalmist is saying that's how special our unity is. And it really is true. It's amazing what people can do when they're in unity. The same thing is true in the household. Now, the second thing it teaches is that unity begins at the head. This is the second point. So, we have the holy oil and it's poured upon the head. What that means is that unity begins at the head. It begins in Jerusalem. That's what this psalm is about. It begins with the king, it begins with the priests, it begins with the elders, it begins with the nobles in uh, Jerusalem. If there is unity in Jerusalem with these uh, officials, then the next point will be, it will then diffuse itself down to the nation. And this is true. Unity needs to begin with those in leadership. Uh, Three things. One The nation, the nation. That's why Paul calls us to pray for our nation and our government. Because when the government is in unity, we're all blessed. It comes down through the whole nation. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on the behalf of all men. For kings and presidents and governors and all who are in authority. So, you have many Christians today uh, politically engaged, and uh, uh, be careful when you talk to them because there is a lot of anger out there about politics today, a lot of anger. And my wife has warned me many times do not. Give your opinion. Just be quiet. Sit there. Mm, people are all talking about Donald Trump. Mm, I'm not saying anything you. I'm going to be really quiet. People get very upset and be very judgmental about it. They can't even be sane. They get very emotional. But it doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter. We're to pray for them. I mean, you think the Caesars were nice guys? <laughs> no, they were wicked, sinful men. Killers, most of them. For all in authority. So we can't say, I don't like Barack Obama. I don't like Donald Trump. It doesn't, That doesn't matter. God says pray for him. And that's what we're to do. Anyone in leadership, anyone in leadership knows leadership of a nation is an impossible job. Why would anyone even want to do this? I, I couldn't tell you. Thomas Jefferson uh, tells a story. He was our third president. But Thomas Jefferson was first vice president before his president. He tells that when he was vice president, he really enjoyed the job very much. Many friends, networking, had time for his lovely reading. He was a great, great reader. Loved books. Maybe, maybe someone here learned that from Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you know? Then he became president, and he says that when he became president, this is what he says, he lost every single friend. Everyone was against him. He said that when he finally ended his presidency, he felt like someone took shackles off his hands and he could go back to his uh, state of Virginia and work at his university and enjoy himself. The point is, when you're in leadership, there's always someone against you. There's someone you've offended, someone you feel you've betrayed them. That's why those in leadership need to be prayed for. It will not be to heaven until we know what God has done through the prayers of churches and the saints for our country. We will not know here upon earth. But the Lord assures us that he is hearing our prayer. So I'm going to say to you, pray for our nation. Doesn't matter what you like or dislike, pray for the Democratic Party. Pray for the leaders of the Democratic Party. Pray for your governor. And I look, I can see some of you out there going, that doesn't matter. It's what the Lord tells us to do. We don't know what God does through our prayers. All I know is do what the Lord tells you to do. So we try every week in our church publicly to pray for those in authority there's another reason they probably had to do this, and that is to show the world. Paul's very interested in what the world thinks of the church, very interested in how our testimony affects the world, how the world looks in at us. The gospel is caught up with who we are as people. So he wants the church to pray for the, the, govern, for the, the government to show the outside world we're not some hateful, inward little group, we are concerned about the world we live in. Because he then says, God loves it when there is at peace. So there's also a testimony, uh, a part of this thing, that we involve ourselves in prayer. Now, you know, there's been a big debate recently over some things said by some Christians. I felt what should have been said in these articles is, let us as the church of Jesus Christ pray for those in authority. That's our job. That is our job. All right, let's move to the second point, which is the home, the Christian home. I want to tell you the Christian home is under attack unlike anything I have ever seen in my life. We need to pray for the heads of the households. And God has made the men the head of the households. Ephesians chapter 5, there's nothing cultural about that. We need to pray for the men of our church. Men are under attack. You know, if Satan can destroy the men, he destroys the household. And I am seeing men destroyed today through pornography and other sins. They're being destroyed. It's so hard to find a good man for so many of our good Christian women. Brothers, sisters, let's pray for the heads of households. So when we go, when I do personally, and then as a church, and I hope you're all doing this, It's our praying for one another. When you pray for one another, pray for the heads of the households. Pray for the men, the fathers, the husbands. Now, we pray for the women and the children, too. But there is a special prayer that God will work in the hearts of those who lead our families. The church is no stronger than your best families. Is this not true, Lance? This church will not rise above the best families. And so it's important that our families are in unity and that the men are taking spiritual leadership in the home. We can't go over that enough. And then in the church, we must pray for the elders. Every day, I, we have three churches we're very closely involved in. And every day I take one of the church and I pray for the elder, uh, one of the elders, and I pray for the wife and the children. Because I know when you become an elder, you put your family at risk. You become a deacon, you're going to put your family at risk. You're going to put your friendships at risk. Uh, It's hard to imagine how much pressure you are when you're a pastor elder. It's really hard. Uh, You you take on the burden of the church. You take on the people's sins and their problems. So uh, at 65, I stepped down as an elder in our church, which was something we planned for so I could the rest of my life, do other things. I want to do other things, and we had some very, very good people to take the next generation, take the church forward. It was amazing to me that after I stepped down as an elder, it was like, all those problems, they're not my problems anymore. And I call them intangibles. I, when, you, when you sign up for the job, no one can tell you what it is to bear the burden of the people. They can't, it's hard. To, you can't put it in a book. It's just hard. But when I step down, all those problems and divorces in the church and fights and the elders bore those. Now, of course, I prayed for them in that. But there is a great weight, a great weight on the leaders of the local church. please. Pray for them. So every day in our three churches, I pray for one of the men, the wife, the children. I know sometimes what they're going through. Not only they bear the burden of the church, but they've got their own marital issues and children issues. It's not easy today in this godless secularized society. I call it the secular tsunami. It's running right over our churches. We hardly have a chance, really. When you consider movies and the TV and the Internet and the college and the high school and the advertising, all the trash coming at our young people, my heart bleeds for them. It does. Will we have faith in the years of the future? Will we have men qualified to carry the church forward? So unity begins at the head. Let's pray for those in authority. Let's pray for our elders should be every day, pray just one elder. You all have a divine responsibility to pray for one another and uphold them. You know, we do get mad at our leaders, we all do, and they make a decision. You know, we're, we're I remember in our church the first time we introduced drums. People said, Oh, finally, drums. Oh, the people over here, I'm gonna leave this church. I hate these people. What's wrong with these elders? Give it in to the young people. Someone was unhappy. Someone was unhappy. You can't win. <laughs> it's like, you know, whatever we do, we're going to get it from somebody. You need to understand that and pray for them. Here's my point. When you pray for them, it's pretty hard to criticize them. And I'll tell you why. Because whenever you pray, the Lord convicts you of criticism. The Lord says, hey, back off. It's not easy doing what this person does. So unity begins at the head. So when you have unity among the elders and the deacons, that unity will Diffuse itself down through the congregation. The congregation is blessed when there is united eldership. It's greatly blessed. And that blessing goes all the way down to the children and the finer things within the church. Now, a third quality here. So first, unity is holy, like the sacred oil. Second, unity begins at the head when it's poured upon Aaron's Head and then runs down his beard. Now, in many ways, the third point is a huge emphasis of this passage. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The third application of this, and there's more, but we'll only do three. The last point is that unity is a diffusive thing. It begins at the head, it run down the garments to the edge of the robes. So, in the immediate context, when there's unity in Jerusalem, among those who lead the nation, the heads, it diffuses itself down through all the tribes, through all, through all the people. You know, every one of us here, they tell us, has a circle of at least 70 people, a circle. So it be relatives, people at work, people at church. Now, some of you, because you're in church work, you might have hundreds of people that are in your circle that you would know, and they would know you. What is happening in this church is diffused far outside this church. If you're in a fight, it won't be just this church that knows. It gets out of your mouth and other people's mouth, to the people you know, and it gets out into the community. So one of our elders, a very, very good man, he just died this last year. I, I buried him. Wonderful man, wonderful man. So anyway, he left us to start a business in the mountains. It was a, it was a real blow when he left because he did so much work. But anyway, he and his wife and another couple went to the mountains and opened this Restaurant that became very famous, and the uh, hard workers did a wonderful job. So the, the town they went to only had 2,000 people. So he gets there. He's a well-trained man, knowledgeable in the Word, very, very competent. They're looking for a church. So right down the street's a little Baptist church. So they start asking some people about the church to the person Every single person said, neighbors said this. These are not Christian people who go to the church. People in the restaurant that he had opened, they said, oh, don't go to that church. That is a fighting church. There had No pastors last more than two years. The neighbors knew this. The people in the community knew this. had a horrible reputation. So anyway, one Sunday night, I said, I'm going to go down and see this church. So he goes down to the church, and he sits in the back, comes in. That night, they were voting on the pastor, whether to get rid of him or to keep him. And he sat in the back, and while he sat there, people are passing notes around, and people are giggling and laughing, and he's getting hotter by the moment. And he sees this poor man up in the front with his family while people are laughing and uh, carrying on like little children, and finally they vote. I, I don't remember they vote whether to keep him or to leave him, but by that time, my friend was outraged. So they got done with the vote, and they announced the vote. Oh, no, they did vote to get rid of him. They did vote. He's out. When they were done, my friend, brave guy, comes walking up to the front. And he said, I'm new to your neighborhood. And I've asked people about churches in the area. When I asked about the church, I'm only blocks away. They said, don't go to that church. It's a fighting church. And he gave some testimonies. And he said, this church has a terrible testimony of the Lord. And tonight I came here as a visitor. I sat in the back, and this man's life was on the line, and you were giggling and laughing and passing notes around like little children. I have never seen anything so sinful and uh, detrimental to the Lord's testimony. They're all sitting there quiet. So someone speaks up and said, Would you be our pastor? (laughs) Oh, Lord, help us and forgive us all. He decided to stay in that church. I don't know why. And through his great leadership, he became a deacon, which was like the elders in their church. He turned that church around. He turned that church around through his good leadership, basically biblical knowledge and doing doing the right thing. Now, here they are in a community, and people know. You see, if you're in disunity that diffuses itself now there are other churches that in the community and among all the people that go to the church and all their friends there's a glowing testament oh that is a wonderful church uh, everyone that goes there just says it's it's so generous and joyous and and the people just love each other It must be a wonderful church the point he's making is unity begins at the head it diffuses itself and then that That goes all the way out into the community. It doesn't just stop here. More people know about your church than you can imagine. So let's say there's maybe 250 people here. I bet there's well over a couple thousand people through each one of you individually with your circle of people that you talk to and tell about the church. They tell someone about the church, and it diffuses itself. Now, it diffuses itself within the church body, too, here. So if the elders are in unity... That unity, because really the eldership is a microcosm of the whole church. That unity with the elders, when they love one another and work with one another, will spread throughout the whole church. And it holds the church together. And that unity goes right down to the Sunday school children and the Awana program or the youth program, whatever it is. It will diffuse itself. When a church is in unity, people grow. They can use their spiritual gift. All the finer graces are allowed to uh, sprout. When there's fighting, when there's division, you know what it's like? Everything is suspicion throughout the whole church. Anything you say, someone's going to take it wrong or twist or turn. Everyone's fearful and guilt and all that. Horrible. It's a horrible place to be. You can see David understood this because he saw it. He saw people killing each other. He saw the destruction of this this nation, God's nation, divided and in civil strife. Unity is a diffusive thing. All are blessed by it. It's holy, it begins at the head, and it diffuses itself. Now the second illustration, the second illustration, the life-giving dew on Hermon. Uh, Verse 3, it's like, unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Okay, now, most of you here should have a little understanding of this because basically it seems to me you live, we took a ride this afternoon and looked at the beauty of the area, but this is like in Colorado, Uh, we're a dry, we're basically a dry state except in the mountains. So, If you come into Colorado through uh, Route 80 or Route 70, if you've ever done this, when you come into Colorado, there's this giant sign, Colorful Colorado. (laughs) What are you laughing at? (laughs) You come into Colorado uh, from uh, uh, Nebraska or you come in from Kansas, Colorful Colorado. For the next three hours, there's only one color. What is it? Brown, and you're looking around, where's this color? I want to see this color. The color's in the mountains, because as you come into Colorado, and especially if you come in from California, it is desert. It is desert. It is brown. So we should be able to understand this illustration. Unity is like the refreshing, invigorating, life-giving dew that comes on Mount Hermon which produces streams, which produces grasslands. In the hot, hot summer, those shepherds take the sheep, and what do they do? They go up to higher ground where there's streams and grass and there's shelter. So what he's saying is in in the the hot Mediterranean climate, dew is is life-giving to the growth of just about everything. Unity is like that refreshing dew. Invigorating, life giving dew that falls on Mount Hermon, which is about 9,200 feet. I think it's a range of about 1,600 miles. And so the sheep and the, the grasses and the pastures and the streams, all of this is produced by the snows, by the dews, by the rain from the mountain. And that is really true. Unity is refreshing, it's life giving. So one of my son-in-laws worked for a very big company. And in this company, the particular branch of the company he, he was working in, there was terrible management, just terrible management. And people were uh, breaking machines, going on two- and three-hour lunch breaks. Uh, uh, there was terrible uh, morale in the company or this branch, this part of the branch of the company. Very little was getting done. It was just Terrible. And finally, finally, the company got rid of all the management and brought in new management. The new management came in, and they were very competent people. And the new management just changed the whole environment. They started putting flowers on people's desks. Every single one that worked in that apartment, they took them individually out to lunch hear the problems, work on the problems, had corporate meetings together, served coffee and tea, set up a whole different uh, way of the desks were being used. Well, within months, within months, those very people who were destroying the machines, not doing anything, they were fixing the machines. Lots and lots of work was being done. Uh. People were enjoying joy coming in into the office. It was a whole breath of fresh air when the management brought unity, brought unity to the staff and to the people. And my son-in-law said, this is absolutely amazing. He himself was taking three-hour walks in the afternoon. That's what he was doing. Anyway, when people are in unity, they can get a lot of work done. And they can back each other up. They can encourage each other when people work together. And that's his point here. It's it's like the freshing dew, the life-giving dew that comes down upon the mountains that brings life and and strength and vitality. That's how important unity is to this church here and to your family and to your workplace where you could be a peacemaker at work. David knows this. He's not just writing poetry. He knows this from personal experience because he saw both things. Can you imagine the joy in David's heart when finally the civil war was done? Jerusalem is now reorganized. There is worship. God is at the center. There's singing. There's choirs. There's teaching. All of this going on. And then the three separate Uh, feasts of coming to Jerusalem it must have brought joy to his heart and somewhere along this line he sees the city and he sees the nation he says how good how pleasant it is when the Israelites live together in unity what a contrast what a but think of what the Lord must have thought the the unity was like a refreshing fragrance of that anointing oil because it was a fragrance unto God. Unity would be a beautiful, refreshing fragrance to God, and disunity, a stench, a stench in God's nostrils. So this man knew exactly what he was talking about. Now we come to the conclusion here of this psalm, the latter part of verse 3, for there... Zion, Jerusalem, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is a very powerful conclusion, very, very powerful conclusion. For there, Jerusalem, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Jerusalem was where God placed his name. There we have the law taught. There we have the sacrifices made. There we have the testimony of the one true only God in a completely polytheistic world. There we have the light to the nations. Now, I want to remind you, Israel had a great commission. We know that from Isaiah. Israel was to be God's people, God's place, to be the truth on earth to all the polytheistic nations. God had called them to be a light. Now, when they were at civil war, they were no light. They were a disgrace. They were weak. But when the nation came together and the city was under revival and reformation, well, that unity will spread itself throughout the nations. Don't think people didn't communicate in those days. Remember when the Ethiopian came from Africa to come They knew all about Solomon. I don't think they're as ignorant as you often think they were. And people were traveling because of the, the, the system of travel. Particularly, Jerusalem was on a major highway of the north, south, and east, and west, with many people coming through it to go to Egypt and to go to Africa. This was to be God's testimony, God's people. They were to be... A light to the nations. And so that's why unity was so important. When they were in unity, they would be the light that they would need to be. Well, how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, First Timothy 3.15 says this. I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, he's talking about the local church. Listen, my dear friends, which is the church of the living God the pillar and support of the truth. Did you realize that every local church is a pillar that upholds, defends the gospel, which is verse 16? In fact, why don't we look at it real quickly? Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is our job. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, let's just read it again with your Bibles open. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the. Notice three uh, metaphors for the church. The household of God. We're the household of God, my friends. We're the family of God, which is the assembly of the living God. He's not a dead God. He's not an idol. We are the congregation of the living God. Only true God. And then I want to point this up. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This local church which you might think is peripheral to the world, is not. The world is peripheral to us. We are a pillar and buttress of the gospel truth. The incarnation, God, came into this world, gave himself for the sins, and took our punishment and and our judgment so that we can be forgiven by God and and be brought into God's presence and be given the Holy Spirit. We are the pillar and buttress of that message. And what is that message? Ultimately, the message of life forevermore. Jesus came into this world, and he preached a message of eternal life. People say, well, Jesus is a great teacher. Great teachers don't promise eternal life. Crazy people do that. Liars do that. Crooks do that. Unless, of course, it's absolutely true. He can grant eternal, everlasting life in the presence of God. Let me tell you, when you get to the end of life, you're not going to be interested in the Dow Jones address or whether it's global warming or the crime. You're not going to be interested in any of that. You're only interested in two things. Where's, where do I go next? And my relatives, those who are close, those who I love. My friends, it's not the university of California that is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's not the government of California that upholds the gospel. It's not our scientific institutions that uphold the gospel. You will not read about this in Time magazine. You'll read it only here. You, right now, I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. We are the congregation of the living, true God. We are the household of God. We are the pillar And we are the support of the greatest message ever given on this earth. And that is the message of salvation, the gospel of the truth of Christ. And when we are in unity, we then become the verifying data of the message. We're the living, walking products of this message. And if we're fighting and hating and killing one another, we have just destroyed the power of the message. It's really our unity that gives us authority in our message and encourages us in our message. The most important thing happening on planet earth now is not in Moscow or in uh, New York or in London. The most important thing happening on planet Earth right now is the building of the body of Christ. And when he's done with that, he'll be back to judge. Our unity is essential to our gospel witness. And it's essential to protect these young people. We have a number of young people here. I'm so happy they're here tonight, not sitting home watching television. I'm going to give you all a hug. You're all going to get a special hug tonight from me for coming. They will not make it without this church. This church, the community of God's people, will save us from the tsunami. We have to stand together and stand together strong. That way we can resist Satan and the secular godless society that hates us. Jesus said, the world hated me, it'll hate you. Just exactly what Jesus predicted. Our unity is so important to the gospel message and to our survival. I don't think we really understand this. And when a church is fighting it out, and and talk to people who have been through a church split. It's so ugly, some Christians don't ever really return. They just don't want anything to do with the church anymore. I've talked to plenty plenty of people like that. It's so destructive. And it ruins the witness. The first casualty of church fighting is the gospel, always. But when there is that supernatural unity of the Lord's people and we really are loving one another and forgiving one another and bearing with one another, building one another up, encouraging one another, we have power. We have authority. We're the reality of the gospel. You know, the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship did a survey of how, what particularly was used by InterVarsity on college campuses to see young people saved. What, what was the method? What, what was bringing young people to Christ? The answer was beautiful. It wasn't so much that they heard a powerful Billy Graham sermon but the majority young people that got saved on college campuses got saved as a result of coming in among Christian young people, going to a Bible study or going to an activity, and actually seeing the lives of born-again college students, seeing immediately they were different, seeing love. And care for one another. It was that that convinced them of the gospel when presented. So every year, Meryl and I, at our anniversary, we're married Christmas Day. Forgive us. It was different 50 years ago. But there was a reason we had to be married Christmas Day to get my parents in. I couldn't get off work and to get a honeymoon in before we had to start school. But anyway, Christmas Day, we got married. So every year, we go to the same hotel downtown for two nights And uh, over the years, we've gotten to know the people there. And uh, it's a nice time of relaxation. But at the exact same time that we meet every year at this hotel, Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew, has a 1,000 young people there for their conference. And we've gotten to know the leaders. And uh, I just love seeing all these college students running around and uh, live and fresh, and have their Bibles in this huge hotel. It's the Hyatt Regency. So I'm talking to some of the people that work there and and, uh, uh, some of the actual, like, the uh, general managers of the hotel. And they said, we've never seen anything like this. A thousand college students, they're not drinking. They're not running around the halls at 3 o'clock in the morning blasting music. They're not fornicating. They're polite. They go to all the restaurants. Even the restaurants know them. This is 20 years they've been doing this. Yes, that's the way it should be. Their testimony is their life together. Changed lives, young people able to get together without being drunk, without smoking, and doing all the vile things they do. The people have to admit there's something different about these people. Same thing with uh, intervarsity. Is when unsaved people see saved people go to a Bible study, come to a home, that they start thinking, what has changed these people? What is different? The gospel. The gospel has created the household of God, the the congregation of the living God, who now become, and you are, a pillar and a support of the truth Christ manifested in the flesh. That's how important our unity is to us. Now, you should understand from me and uh, Lance, that we do not mean unity at any price. Truth always comes before unity, always. Our, our unity is based on the truth of the gospel, Christ, his word. That's where our unity comes from. In fact, if we'll just obey our Bible, we'll have unity because the Bible lays out all the virtues to be united. Humility, forgiveness, bearing with one another, gentle. Go down the list of virtues. Go down the list of virtues no reason for us having a division unless it's some very, very serious problem. But I see most churches that divide, it's not a serious theological problem. Much of it is personality, pride, uh, jealousy, uh, inability to be humble with one another. The message is directly connected to our unity and our togetherness, which gives us, as I call it, you are the verifying data of the reality of this message. You're the product of the message. Let me tell you a story, and it's in closing. Many of you uh, w- here in California would remember Ronald Reagan. when He was president of the United States. He, uh, he fostered a, um, a, f- uh, a, uh, a relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev of Russia and it was in all the news their their friendship their ability to talk to one another and to make some real world changes Ronald Reagan became very concerned about a Jewish dissident who had been 11 years in exile Anatoly Sharensky. Anatoly Sharansky was world renowned as this Russian dissident in an internal exile in Russia. Many had tried to get him released. So Mr. Reagan pleaded with Mr. Gorbachev to release him to Israel, and that happened. So the day that Anatoly Sharansky, who became a very famous politician in Israel, one of our presidents read his book, was very much moved by it, George Bush. When he was released, to show you how, how stubborn this man was, the Russian guard said to him, they walk a straight line uh, to the west. Well, he, he goes back and forth uh, just to defy them, just defy them. Not a man they could easily break. So, anyway, he comes to the free world. Reporters, thousands of reporters are there. And so, someone yelled out, We heard this story that you almost died to get your Psalter. The Psalter is the book of Psalms usually in a smaller form, you can fit in your pocket. He said, yes, that's a true story. The Russian guard had taken his psalter away, and Anatoly Sharensky threw himself on the Siberian snow. And the guard's smart enough to know this guy's prepared to die here, and he's world-renowned, can't have that happen unless Moscow approves it. And so the Russian guard throws his little psalter down on the snow. Anatoly Sharensky wipes it off, puts it back in his pocket, and returns to the barracks. Someone yelled out, what's your favorite psalm? Jim, what's his favorite psalm? How did you guess that? (laughs) Psalm 133. And then he explained why Psalm 133 was so important. He said the one thing communists hate more than anything else is solidarity. They can't take people in unity. Same thing is true in China right now. Everything to break up people, break up people, control, control. It's all about control of the government. They can't control you if you're with a group. Anatoly Sharensky said at night, every night, they would gather under a little light bulb, and they would read the Psalms together every night. And as a result of reading the Psalms every night together, he said, we became one man. Any one of us was prepared to die for any one of us. And they couldn't break that. They couldn't break that solidarity. That's why they wanted to destroy the Psalter. It made them one man, caring for one another, helping one another, and encouraging one another. There's nothing Satan hates worse than the people of God in unity. Loving one another, caring for one another, witnessing to one another, uh, 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 building up one another. He, he hates that. He hates that. Because from us goes out the message, life forevermore. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We really have an important message. It's called the good news message. It's the best news ever, actually. Nothing I can I, I love more to hear about than eternal life. It's very interesting as you get older. I love those verses on heaven and eternal life and our inheritance. Whenever I see them in my Bible reading, I go, Oh, I love that verse. I love that My inheritance. He's won for me an inheritance, and I have a home in heaven. Oh, boy, that's really good news. Takes away the fear of death and the many, many false ideas we have about death. We have a message, life forevermore. And that message is tied to our unity and our oneness and our obedience and faithfulness to the word of God. Because I believe that most of our problems, the vast majority of our problems in division can be solved with the right Christian virtues and attitudes and humbleness and brokenness. I believe many of our problems in our relationships are really a test. What what principles are we going to operate on? And I'll I'll tell you what the apostle said. Do nothing. Do nothing. Do nothing from pride and selfishness. Philippians chapter 2. In humility, in humility, esteem others better than yourself. Don't look only on your own interests, but on the interests of others. Have that mind in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. What's that mind? Humility and selflessness. How can you fight when you're in humility, esteeming others better than yourself? It's always pride and selfishness, the root twin sisters of all our division. Oh, how good it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It's like the holy oil that's poured out on the head of Aaron that runs down his beard and around his uh, robes, diffusing itself. Ah, it's like the refreshing dews of Hermon, that refreshing moisture in the air in a dry, arid climate. To smell that moisture and to have some rain And even snow and just invigorate you and and, and bring life to you. Because from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion, the message is to go out, life forevermore. From this assembly, the message goes out through every single one of you, life forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this magnificent psalm and it is a magnificent psalm strikes at the very heart of being human and being living in relationship with people which is not easy for us sinners proud and arrogant and stubborn we thank you for the power of the holy spirit to live within us and give us the life of god and to remind us of the things of God and the word of God, to empower us to do the will of God. We're very thankful for the brotherhood and sisterhood, that we're really, really brothers and sisters with the DNA of the Holy Spirit, and that we have a wonderful future, a wonderful home. Heaven is our home. And we have a new earth and a new heaven, and a brand new body like Christ's body, all these things because of Christ, (coughs) blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We're very grateful to be your children and to be saved. May we as a congregation be a living testimony to the power of the gospel to the reality of Christ in us. May there be no disconnect between what we believe and how we live and speak and act. Work in us. And so I pray for this church. I pray for your power to be upon this church. I pray for great grace to rest upon this assembly. I pray that if there's ill feelings towards one another or jealousies or anger or hurt feelings, that we'll just deal with them the way we should in in full repentance and put these things away and live the Christian life, live the Christ-like life. May this local church become a testimony in the community. May the unity and the love of this church spread throughout this city, may many people hear of your work in this local church. May it truly be a faithful, strong pillar and support of the truth of the gospel. Bless this church. Protect this church. Increase this church. May it be pleasing to you in all things. I ask this. In the very powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It has been a great joy to be with you. And I've only seen unity thus far, but I don't know what goes on to the surface except that I know people. Remember these truths. They're all through the New Testament.